the operations of an airline on a different footing, on a different cost basis, and potentially, I guess, allow it to benefit from some of the historic roots that SA would have had. Uh, why would you not be open to that and maybe suggest, uh, uh, as you just did, that, uh, you know, uh, let's maybe crumple this one up, see Lashem Emkomen. Cool, look, um, they're talking about, you know, taking down the headcount, which has been the biggest chat around, um, you know, SAA's uh, very bloated balance sheet that, you know, the stuff cost uh, a, a little bit too much, like I alluded earlier. I mean, so you cut, you know, the the staff complements about 80% or around 1,000 people. There'll be startup costs here and there, etc. This sounds like a brand new, you know, airline, uh, which is, again, it's going to be called SAA, whatever it's going to be called, it's going to be much smaller. Um, and obviously, hopefully, uh, the big debt that's crippling this business is going to be paid off. But what's stopping this new SAA from, uh, you know, veering out of the way again, people getting back to their old ways, because we know people, right, when there's a lot of monitoring, when there's a lot of, you know, um, forced responsibility and accountability, they tend to do the right thing, and as soon as the adults look the other way, the children go back to playing and being naughty again. So, I, I don't know, I, I, I know I sound a little bit downbeat, but like, I don't think we need a national carrier, we do need the supporting services, like you mentioned yesterday, around SAA, like, the, you know, teaching our pilots down in PE. We need that. We need the support services, you know, to uh, service all the other vessels, not mm. just the SAA alone. All of those engineering services and those aviation services that they provide sure. is amazing. We are good at that. Let's stick at what makes the profits and leave the flying alone and holding and operating vessels alone. It's just maybe if that was the chat, I'd actually be quite upbeat and excited about this. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, 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 I think uh, you're right. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. We're not having we're not having the value chain chat. We're, we're not having uh, the chat about which elements and parts of this uh, can we still maybe retain and potentially uh, continue to turn cash flow positive. Um, and rather yeah. than you know take the the last mile sort of retail operational part. And potentially get an Ethiopian Airlines potentially to run something like that. But let's shift. I, I, let's shift away from that could, because we could mm. be more. We could be more competitive there. I think because I mean, mm. right now when you look at those services, they're all provided by monopolies here in South Africa. There is space for two at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I think about SA Technical, and I think there's a lot of other synergies uh, that could be exploited, and uh, maybe some basis of cost sharing between Danel and uh, even I guess SA Technical and others because they yeah, have Oklahoma too there in Camden Park. But, but let's shift away from that, Mbulaz, uh, and I want us to take a look at uh, Dangote Cement. Now, uh, they, they've been, I guess, uh, you know, uh, playing around with the possibilities of uh, uh, getting a secondary listing in London to uh, diversify their ownership structure and maybe to also access uh, cheaper capital uh, on uh, the international capital markets. And it seems it's always stop-start process, delay, stop-start, delay. What's happening now? Look, so you say there's a stop-start delay, but I mean... Like you're saying, uh, Aleko Tamote is the richest man in Africa with over 14 billion US dollars in net worth, right? So in, in naturally, he's getting to an age where, you know, he wants to spend more time with his money and less time with his business. And it makes sense that all of this money be in hard currency, considering the fact that, you know, what's happening in Nigeria uh, with the devaluing of, of their currency and not being able to actually get hard cash. Uh, you know, in hard currencies, 
you know, freely flowing inside the country has been very tough for the richest man in Africa to actually monetize his, you know, paper wealth, right? So going offshore made sense in the sense that, you know, he's going to have pounds all of a sudden because I'm sure he's going, instead of selling shares, you know, um, you know, phantom shares that they create from nothing, he's actually want to sell some of his shares <laughs> in London so he crystallizes, you know, those, you know, Naira and converts them to hard currencies like a pound and actually build mm. something in pound. But I think the reason why it didn't go through, maybe I might be wrong here, I'm not quite sure why it didn't go through 2017, 2018. It could be the fact that our own dollar billionaire here at home and another African, you know, giant retailer, uh, Crystal Visa, tried to do the same thing using Steinoff, right? You know what happened to Steinoff? So he sold a lot of his, um, well, a chunk of his um, shares locally and was trying to externalize them into euros while, you know, Steinoff was listed in, um, you know, in Germany. That didn't end well. It happened that, you know, Steinoff was a, you know, a, you know, a hustle card that it was and has scared a lot of offshore investors putting their hard-earned currencies um, you know, in these African so-called businesses, right? So mm. it, it made sense. Maybe there was no demand then. Again, they tried to, well, we were promised again that this year, maybe that could be potentially be the year. Uh, and then the coronavirus pandemic has happened and then and management is detecting, saying that they'll focus more on export rather make those hard currencies that way uh, until further notice, right, to a point where there is demand for and paper, but right now there doesn't seem to be any demand for it, and they've pushed it all the way to 2023. I hope in 2023 it's a much bigger business with more, you know, African mm. exposure, maybe other hard currencies, you know, as they export more of their goods and services, and maybe it will make a more viable cement player that competes, yeah, you know, yeah. with other, you know, offshore cement, you know, players, uh, including the, the the French giants, you know, and the Turkish giants as well in the space so it's, mm. it, it's possible but i mean it, it's hard and and there's reasons for it why you know Dangote cement paper hasn't been uh you know much in demand outside of africa yeah actually it seems their treasury and capital budgeting divisions are very busy because uh, since all the way like around 2017 right up to now they've been looking at uh, all of the ways they can try and uh, sort of uh, mediate the impact of uh, some of the devaluation of the Naira on their business. Uh, and uh, it's certainly something we're going to watch quite closely there. But uh, I, want us to to, I want us to shift our attention here, Mbulaz, just quickly to, to WeWork um, and maybe some of your thoughts on that. Uh, but uh, maybe you wanted to make another point just on Dangote. No, so my closing remarks on Dangote was that I think uh, their balance sheet looks a bit strongish right now. They recently raised about 100 billion Naira, which is 259 million US dollars at the mm. time. Again, using commercial paper, to actually see them through maybe to 2023. It's a very well-run conservative business, and they sell, you know, to the real economy, construction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So when the economies in Africa start picking up, because um, I mean there is large demand for their product, they'll be fine. I think they'll be fine. It's just that they need to stick it through to 2023, maybe. Okay. New now we work. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can't you know, believe so, we're still talking about another IPO for WeWork. Uh, I mean, just yeah, yeah. I mean, I, WeWork IPO. I remember Adam Newman uh, selling the dream of WeWork to be the We company. You know, that does a whole host of things, not just 
you know, building or space sharing or whatever they want to call themselves that day. I, oh, I've always wanted to say this, that I'm old enough to have seen the story from beginning to end and from to beginning again. So they wanted to raise about 3.5 billion US dollars. That, that was last year before Uber. This was going to be the second biggest uh, IPO after Uber that year. But all of a sudden, um, you know, after the, those, that, that IPO filing, uh, people saw words such as community-adjusted EBITDA, uh, weird stuff that was happening there, building and community-level operating expenses, accounting you've never heard before, um, worse than communist accounting, in my own opinion. And uh, <laughs> again, you know, nothing happened because in, there was just no demand for its paper. They never made profits. And there was a lot of related party transactions that were happening. And SoftBank, being one of the biggest backers of this business, uh, came in to chip in to say, look, we're going to keep it private because there's no demand for it. I mean, this needs to be valued uh, in the private market, $47 billion, US dollars. 90% of that is gone, poof, just like that overnight because it was just never worth that. At the end of the day, you're a landlord and you can't be valued as a technology business. And all the early investors in WeWork have learned the hard lesson of, you know, sticking to the truth and just looking at mm. the business for what it does, not what you want to think it does. So uh, we'll be watching the IPO if it actually happens. But, you know, the current CEO, Matrani, has got his work cut out for him. Um, I wonder what, you know, valuation it's going to fetch. Notwithstanding the fact that, you know, there's still a lot of uh, cases pending or suits pending, uh, you know, on the three billion US dollars that SoftBank promised to give the previous management. They gave them a small portion, I think about 180 million US dollars, if I'm, I'm correct. That includes Adam Newman's but, uh, portion, sorry. And uh, the big issue here is that the, the rest of the funds haven't been paid and they're suing to say, actually, there's no value for money to be paid to these guys because actually, what restraint of trade are we stopping them from doing? Because all they did was destroy value. So what are these skills that they have that we're trying to make sure that they don't impart with them to another business. They might as well go and start their own thing. We don't care. Mm, so that's, that's mm. the argument right now. But uh, we, we're watching all of those cases as well. It's been interesting. Not interested in another building company as an investment for the long term. No thanks. So, so I mean, it, it seems, although I guess the sort of exit payment issue hasn't been resolved, Newman still remains in the picture somewhat uh, according to uh, Matrani, uh, saying that you know he gets a chance to chat to him from time to time. Well, I guess it will linger until all of these suits, are, uh, the pending suits, are you know settled. I'm sure they're going to come into a settlement. It's not. It's no longer the old management is no longer going to get whatever three billion or two billion you know US dollars that they expected as they were promised when they got kicked out of the company. But they will get something. Uh, it, it will be small in their terms. It's still going to be big. It's still be in the hundreds of millions of dollars, which, you know, for people that really didn't create any value is a lot of money, right? I would like to wake up one day and be worth over, you know, 500 million US dollars without doing absolutely nothing. But here I am. <laughs> so hey. I think, I still think um, they will come to a settlement uh, just to keep them quiet and to make sure they stay away from them. And they will try to build this business as a REIT going forward, because that's what this business is, a REIT, real estate investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And, uh, of course, they, they wouldn't call themselves that, but uh, that's exactly what they have, a combination, I guess, of uh, some typical franchising model and uh, a REIT model there. But, uh, I mean, the other thing, Bulaz, I wanted us to talk about was um, 
what's happening at the World Trade Organization. And uh, I guess it uh, happens at a very interesting time in the global uh, a trade framework uh, in the context, I guess, of uh, the impasse between Beijing and Washington, uh, but also uh, raising some question marks around the consensus-type uh, approach uh, that is often uh, held towards uh, the appointment of senior leaders at the World Trade Organization. Ooh, I think, again, um, the World Trade Organization finds itself in the crossfires of, you know, the political arms race that's currently happening in the United States. Uh, the current president is exercising his, you know, presidential um, scope, I guess, or duties or powers, uh, you know, to make sure that, you know, still, you know, show who's boss, I guess. And this was meant to be the World Trade Organization's first female chief that has basically reached a stalemate. So I guess we will only know what happens at the WTO post the 4th of November when we know who's the actual president of the United States and maybe that will help alleviate maybe some of, you know, the pressures that the World Trade Organization is facing right now because we need buy-in from all of the different countries that are involved, right? And if the U.S. is in the middle of a, you know, um, a very rough election like we see between Joe Biden and, and, and Donald Trump, uh, it's, it's not going to happen. It's unfortunate that these things have to be politicized, but that's where the world is, and that's how we have to play the game. Mm-mm-mm. And if, if the opposite happens, I mean, uh, for a lot of people that are optimistic about a Biden victory, if, if, uh, if he doesn't get it, well, what happens then? Uh, I think uh, Ngozi Okonjo, I, I guess, he gets a seat, and we, we have our first you know, female World Trade Organization chief. I think that, that that's what happened. Which Trump? No, no. I'm saying if, if if there's a Trump victory, if there's a oh, Trump so victory, if, I mean, if, what's if the likelihood Trump, of the yeah, South yeah. Korean candidate coming through? So I absolutely have no idea what happens in that man's mind. It's always you know based on um, what he thinks is best, based on the advice he gets around him and what is good mm. for the U.S. market. So I don't know. It's it's it, I absolutely have no idea who actually comes victorious here, but we know he doesn't like black people. So that's the first, you know, big problem there. Uh, but I don't know whether South Korea wins also <laughs> this one. I don't think it's that easy. So it's, yeah. it's going to be up in the air. Complicated one, uh, no doubt there, Mbulazi. But uh, as always, my brother, a pleasure catching up with you. We'll have to leave it there. And uh, we'll be watching quite closely, I guess, uh, how this impasse is resolved at the World Trade Organization. Uh, this after all of the threats that Trump has been making uh, that... Uh, I guess if they don't get their way as the U.S., that uh, they might even be pulling out of that institution. Uh, We'll uh, certainly watch uh, some of those developments very closely there.